0: prom Welcome back to Christ Is The Cure. I am Nick, and I'm your host today. And uh, that said, uh, Anthony and Paul have been doing an excellent job as have all the writers. Um, Before we begin, I want to say uh, I'm sorry if the audio is different than usual. I'm playing with the the volume levels and seeing how to tweak it, make it better, so that the presets are set, so I don't have to mess with it anymore because it kind of got messed up over the years. Um. And then second, I want to say thank you to all those who have become patrons. Um, I know that a lot of the growth has come from the courses that I've been putting out, the Crash Course Theology, um, for example, and then uh, future courses that are going to be coming up. And the courses are a way to give patrons something more um, because I wanted to do something for them. But it's also been an incentive for people to jump on, which is great. Um and i and i love that you guys love that i love that it's something you want to do but first and foremost it's supporting everything we're doing here because i'll shoot straight in an ideal world i'm doing this part-time and so you're supporting the the website the hosting um you know all the all the cloud storage for documents and for the photos the graphics you know and you're ultimately allowing me to have that time to put together materials, put together teams, put together um, schedules and work with people. And I actually added a new individual to the team. You can read more about the team at Christ slash slash About. Um, and this individual will help me organize and structure so that it's a little bit less of that and I can focus on bringing more people in. And so we're trying to expand because there's a lot of people who are reached. Um, uh, it's been it's been very interesting watching all of this grow over time. I'm not really sure what it looks like long-term. I know that some people have questions about whether or not it'll become non-profit. If I'm honest, I'm very weary about non-profit because, well, uh, there's a lot of strings attached to that. And so I'm not really sure what it looks like in that uh, regard, but we are planning on adding more mail writers down the road. Um, so if that's something that interests you, um, just keep an eye out and I'll put up an application at some point. But the whole point is that Patreon is ultimately a way to fund everything that you see from the websites to the time being put into efforts and um, like i said ideally i would love to do this part-time minimally um and so patreon is a way for you to support what we're doing And, and quite frankly i've been surprised by um the the global reach including some of the most persecuted countries on earth are getting these resources which is pretty um interesting and then churches have been using our materials as well for small groups and for um For giving their congregants resources for theology, and so I, it's been an incredible blessing having that privilege. And so, being a patron will allow that door to open more for more effort, more time, more energy put into what we do here. And of course, for my long-time patrons who dealt with little perks of being a patron, um, now they have the courses. And so, I hope the courses prove to be something that's um, beneficial and edifying in some shape or form. And ideally I'll get some of those accredited, um, for continuing education credits mentally, and then maybe certificates down the road, but we have a long way to go before we get there. So that's a lot to, to, to say before we begin this episode, which is already going to be kind of long. I really have no idea how long this episode is going to be. Um, and we'll just jump into it. So we're going to be talking about images Of Jesus. Now, if you don't know that this was a debate, it's a debate, and it's a long debate about whether or not we can have images or depictions of Jesus, whether on art, statues, um, movies, um, you know, kids, Bibles, stuff like that, and it's a big debate. Um, I've always kind of sat on the fence on this topic, but now I finally have a position. Um, I am up for being persuaded otherwise, Um, I think that there's room for debate. I hope I can approach this graciously because I know it's a heated debate, especially historically, let me tell you. Um, And so there's a lot of moving parts. In fact, even whenever we get through this and we start talking about Eastern Orthodoxy, how they view icons, how they view icons is vastly different than how normal, quote-unquote, Christian art would be viewed. And as we go through this, I just want you to keep in mind that there's always more. And I was, I was trying to put together as much as I could in here, but I was really struggling because there really is a lot, in organizing and organizing it mentally was hard. Um, because you have the discussion on veneration versus worship, um, which one is basically giving honor to, one is worshiping, serving, living for, right? Uh, so we need to be able to make that distinction, which is kind of hard for us because we want to say that veneration equals worship and things of that nature, which we'll, we'll get to that down the road. Um, and then there's a the distinction between art versus... Um, icons for worship or um, statues for worship. And then you have um, an underlying discussion on what's called the regulative principle of worship versus the normal uh, principle. Uh, so there's a lot of moving parts here. So I've I've done what I could to kind of summarize key points, but there's a big possibility that I've missed things. Um, Like I said, there's, there's just a lot of moving parts. So we're going to be talking about the subject of images, and it will become specifically narrowed down to images of Christ. Right? Um, again, this is a hotly debated topic, namely between the Reformed tradition and everyone else. If if we're thinking about it, and I that may not be fair, but if you look at Anglicans, if you look at um, you know regular evangelicals, if you look at um, Catholics, if you look at um, Lutherans, if you look at Eastern Orthodoxy, they all believe that images, statues, or icons are acceptable in some shape or form. And even within these groups, there's debates about what things are supposed to look like. Um, For example, if I'm not mistaken, I know historically, um, but I'm not sure if it's the case in the modern era, that Eastern Orthodoxy um, disagrees with statues, with 3D images of Christ and saints. They believe it should be only 2D. In fact, they would argue that the council that we'll be discussing today Um, put put that forward pretty clear. So there's still nuances. And then even then there's discussions about whether or not images are just um, to be um, placed in a house of worship and whether or not they have a function in worship or whether or not they're just there for decoration or whether or not they shouldn't be included, but you can have them privately. And then one interesting one was I've met quite a few reformed individuals who find that depictions of Jesus in art is not acceptable, but in movies, it is acceptable. But that's a minority, I think, from just experience and, you know, perceiving. And then um, there's also been an articulation where um, they disagree with the idea of pictures of Christ in your mind being sinful. Um, and if you don't know where that comes from, we'll get to that um, here in a little bit. So first, we're going to start off with definitions. Um And I'll put in sources and references and, uh, you know, in the description of this episode so that you can go and read for yourself and flesh it out. And um, in the sources, you'll see the differing perspectives a little bit. Um, I put a defense of the Reformed position in there. Um, And then I also have some um, stuff from others. So anyway, so using Nick Needham's uh, 2000 Years of Christ Power, he defines um, images as a religious image of Christ an angel, a saint, um, popular and fashionable from the 4th century onwards. An icon could be a statue, a low-relief carving, a mosaic, a painting, or a drawing. They usually adorned churches. Paintings and drawings were found in Bibles, and the East tended to reject statues as too much like the icons of pagan gods. Um, The IVP Pocket Dictionary of Liturgy says an icon... Um, As an image, in the Christian context, it's an image of Jesus or any of the saints. It's understood as an impulse to, or an example of, holiness and faith. An icon is also a window or a means of access to the deity or saint who dwells beyond. Many Protestants reject the presence of icons in worship based off of Exodus twenty-four through 6 That idea of window or means of access is an Eastern idea, to clarify there. Um, Pocket Church History Dictionary, also by IVP, I believe, says um, an icon from the Greek word image, or the Greek word for image. Um, The technical meaning of icon in church history is a flat picture of any size depicting Christ, Mary, or the saints, and painted in a distinctive Byzantine style to promote worship and veneration. Icons were used widely by Christians in the medieval period and are particularly identified with the Eastern Orthodox Church. And then the Orthodox Study Bible, um, because we're already kind of leaning in that way as we read through these. An icon is a transliterated word meaning image, based off Colossians 15. Icons of Christ and his saints depict the reality of the Incarnation, because the Son of God became man. He can be imaged. Orthodox Christians honor and venerate icons, but never worship them, for worship is due to the Holy Trinity alone. The honor given to icons passes on to the one represented on the icon— as a means of thanksgiving for what God has done in that person's life. So, out of all these definitions, I've opted to take Needham's because it's the most broad, right? As we read through them, it became more narrowed down to the Eastern Orthodox idea of these 2D Byzantine paintings, which I'm sure you've seen, and if you haven't, you can go look it up, Eastern Orthodox icons. Um, so, we can, and, you know, Eastern Orthodox adherents would be very firm on drawing the line between art and images, and arts and icons, um, but I'm going to take Needham's definition, which makes for a much easier, um, discussion here. Um, so we're actually going to begin with the history and then we'll get into the theological aspect, whether or not the history takes up the whole section of this. Cause I think that this is going to end up being a two or three parter. Um, we're gonna talk about the history here, uh, first, and then maybe we'll break it up and do the theological aspect second, which means that we're just copying Paul at this point. Um, from his repentance episodes. Um, so the history is difficult. Um, there are discrepancies between the practice and writings, uh, which we actually find in the Reformation era too. We'll get to that little in a little bit. Um, but there there's this weird discrepancy between the practice and writings in regards to what uh, we see with Christian art being in early churches and what people wrote about. Calzell um, and the Encyclopedia of Ancient Christianity Notes that ecclesiastical writers were not willing to accept the use um, of or venerate images, though he also says, although most of the time they express themselves indirectly. So he's saying that they wrote against these things indirectly. Furthermore, as um, he he argues, he notes that the early church would take a stance against images, and they would use um, the anti-images text of the Old Testament um, at the forefront of the debate, and they would combat images. Um, as if they were pagan idolatry, right? Um, Further, the Reformed tradition and some Protestants uh, would argue that the early church was violent against icons. But see, what becomes difficult already, if you didn't notice, is that the writings against images are indirect, if they're relevant at all. And at the same time, there is clear evidence of art and images in the early church. Um, And a good example is Tertullian, who was a writer of the early church. And he notes that Christians have images of the good shepherd on chalices. And that's in his work on modesty chapter 10. Uh, Paintings are also found in catacombs dating from the third, but possibly as early as the second century. Um, And a famous baptistery in the East contain images as well. And this dates no later to the third century. So for Tertullian, there are writings against images in his writings But he's obviously addressing practices um, that were occurring. Um, So as we enter into the 4th and 5th century, there are two strong oppositions to images. The first is from Eusebius. And Eusebius is a church historian in the early church. Um, He's kind of the guy. Um, And he says that Christ cannot be depicted because the human form of Christ was now completely deified. Which is kind of a different um, approach than you see in modern discussions, which it's considerable. Um, but this was in response to the sister of Constantine, and she wanted to obtain an image of Christ from Eusebius. So he he's requested an image, and he says no, because it's not proper. Um, but he also notes that there were, um, or there was, a monument of Christ and the woman with the hemorrhage uh, from the Gospels who touches his garment and is healed, um, along with paintings of Peter, Paul, and Jesus that he encountered. And he didn't have anything to say there. Um in one letter, though it's disputed, um, Ephanius, I hope I pronounced that correctly. By the way, this is going to be a, a mess of mispronunciation because that's my quirk. That's what we're going with. Um, so a leader in Salamis, Ephanius, notes that um, in Palestine, there was a village church with a curtain that had a painting of Christ or a saint on it. And in this report, Apparently he pulls down the curtain and he asks John of Jerusalem to put an end to the depictions. Um, But most people have pointed out that this um, could be a forgery since the document didn't find itself present until the big debates on this topic in the eighth and ninth century. And what you find is that during these debates, sometimes those documents just come out of thin air, don't they? Anyway. um, So this document is in question. Uh, we see the practice occurring um, with statues, paintings, and um, catacombs and on chalices. Um, what's ironic is that this story of Ephanius uh, pulling down this curtain and writing to John, telling him to put it into depictions, actually was buried in a church that had images, which is one of those things where we kind of keep seeing this as we go through all this. Um, other church writers speak of images with little to no disapproval, and they point to the cross as a particular image, right? Uh, Jerome and Augustine know images painted on vases, um, and the images are Peter and Paul and Christ. And uh, Gregory of uh, Nisa notes that a martyr is depicted with an image of Christ as well. Further, the same Gregory uh, promoted paintings for those who cannot read, and images give rise to the desired spiritual realities. And then the last note before we get into the big debate is that Gregory the Great, um, who shoots down um, adoration of images and superstitious worship of images, says that there should be no destruction of these images and no abuse of these images. Quote, for pictorial representation is made use of in churches for this reason, that such as are ignorant of letters may at least read by looking at the walls what they cannot read in books. Um, so basically they're saying don't destroy them, just don't let people worship them and let them remain. Uh, And that's in the register of the Epistles of St. Gregory the Great, Book 9. So for those who are against images, they usually say there was a lot of violent opposition and overwhelming opposition to images in the early church. But the problem is that's not the case. There seems to be isolated cases where there's critiques, uh, while at the same time there's plentiful examples of art and images. So the issue is if there was a strong adamant position against these practices, while these practices are seen widespread, then we should expect more to be written on the subject, but there's just not. It's very it's very ambiguous, um, to say the least. And so I'm kind of left thinking that there were a few um who who didn't like it while it was practiced. And so that's kind of all we can really gather from that. That all said, sometimes there's a council called the Council of Elvria, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, And it comes up um, as an example of the church being against images. Um, And it's a 4th century local council. And the Encyclopedia of Ancient Christianity um, notes that Canon 36 prohibited the display of paintings in churches. So first off, the council was a local council. It was in Spain. And the canon states that it seems good that the images should not be in churches so that what is venerated and worship not be painted on walls. So when reading through this particular council and its use in the discussion I have essentially found that both sides of the debate utilize it. Both those for and against images utilize this particular local council. Um so what what is concluded ultimately from my analysis is that there's a lack of context that makes the whole thing difficult and it leaves us with little to nothing to go off of. Um, not only that, but it's problematic because churches in Spain continue to have artwork. And not only that, but this is typically deemed a disciplinary canon, not a theological canon, meaning that the church was likely respond to a specific issue. So this council wasn't ecumenical. It wasn't universal. Um, it was just a local council, which is significant because it means the whole church didn't show agreement on this particular issue. Um, it doesn't mean that they didn't hold the position. It just means that in terms of evidence we have, we don't have evidence that there was a universal agreement on this. Um, so appeal to a local council, um, especially in the face of a, the seventh ecumenical council, which we will get to in a bit. Um, it's kind of weak in my opinion, especially since both sides utilize it and there's not really good context. Um, not only that, but if you go look this up and read the other canons, they're very, they're very strange. um, and there are a few that we would we would actually appeal to and uphold, to say the least. Um, so it, this gives us another small look into perhaps a local discussion or an isolated event. So again, we're left with kind of mixed evidence about what's going on. And then we come to the brutal controversy of the 7th and 8th century on this topic. Um, and one could argue that it was just as political as theological. Um there was an attack on icons by Emperor Leo III in 726, and it wouldn't be until 780 that uh, persecution uh, that this persecution ended. Um, so people who, who held the icons would be persecuted and killed. In 787 in Nicaea, the council would be held that accepted the previous 6th ecumenical council and then decreed the restoration of images. This is the 7th ecumenical council. Um, and if you don't know, I'd highly recommend you just look up real quick I'm sure, got questions has something on it. What are the first six ecumenical councils? It's like the Council of Nicaea through the Council of Chalcedon, right? Um, where we get our big Trinitarian formulas. So, the major thrust of the debate at this council was that the incarnation was real. That was the stress. And this is going to ripple throughout the rest of this episode. Um, uh, but they, noticed, they noted that images were to be given honorable reverence and that the reverence goes past the image to the person who's representing the image, right? It's just kind of a way to visualize who you're actually, um, reverencing, but that these images or icons don't get true worship of the faith, which is only given to the divine nature. Uh, this council did issue an anathema to those who would, um, equate images with the idols. Um, of course, this didn't solve the controversy completely. Um, there were continued tensions and attacks. And in fact, the Franks with Charlemagne, uh, led this opposition against icons. So if we look at the arguments of the controversy, it's it's helpful, because quite frankly, they're all the same. You look at the, the arguments they all had back then, they're all the same to this day, as far as I can tell. There's there's slight variations, and there's slight different ways of, of articulating them, but they all kind of boil down to the same principles, as far as I can tell. Mainly, well, okay, mainly the, the major charges of these two, which are Christological heresies. Um, before we move on, though, it's worth noting that this was an isolated issue in the Eastern church, which is ironic when everything about the Eastern church now. Um, But because the Western church accepted the depiction of Christ married in the saints and icons already, but they had less theological significance as the Eastern church was putting onto them. Now here's an ironic little factoid is that initially the Westerners rejected the practice of bowing or kneeling before the icons um, because the second council pronounced condemnation on those who did not honor icons. But eventually, those in the West adopted the customs and then went further than the Eastern practice by moving from 2D pictures to statues, as we mentioned earlier. And this, of course, led to the East, accusing them of idolatry. Of course, uh, the condemnation of those who didn't honor icons. Um, I've heard some people say that this is basically treating them with respect, not just like destroying them or something like that, right? Um, I've heard some having uh, meaning that you're condemned if you don't venerate them. Obviously, the former, you can kind of get on board with the latter can't get on board with. So depending on where you land, if you land where you're okay with art and images and you read that wall, you're like, well, I still disagree with the seventh ecumenical council. If you, if you don't agree with icons, well, I disagree with all the seventh ecumenical council. Anyway, at one point, Nick Needham points out that one of the interesting differences between the East and the West was that the East tended to depict Christ as a man and the West tended to depict him as a symbolic form, often as a lamb. And the East rejected this on the grounds that it could be a way to, um, move into animal pagan worship. The incarnation required that the sun be depicted as a human being. Another interesting factoid. So you can see there's diverse understandings of what was supposed to happen even here, where it was supposedly solved or supposed to be solved. Um, So the arguments for those um, who were against icons can be summarized as follows. First, they would argue that the second commandment prohibited All icons and images. Um, Basically, all man-made religious icons or images should be thrown out because of the second commandment, right? Um, You should not make a graven image or idol, right? Um, The only proper images of Christ, um, according to this position, were found in communion, the cross, not a crucifix. If you don't know the difference, the cross is the cross without Jesus. The crucifix is the cross with Jesus on it. And the Cairo sign, which is the the P and the X. If you haven't seen that before, you can look it up. Additionally, um, these individuals would argue that the incarnation did not allow for depictions of Christ in images, but only Christ himself is the image of God. They would then go on to say that um, the picture can only depict his human nature and not his divine nature, and thus it doesn't depict Christ, thus properly robbing him of his deity, and basically saying that he's two different persons because you can depict one, not the other. And this would be known as Nestorianism, which affirmed Jesus' divine nature and affirmed his human nature, but believed that Jesus has two persons. Um, and this was condemned in Ephesus in 431. Um, it basically says that his two natures were completely separate in the Incarnation. So they they charge him a Nestorian because you can depict his human nature, but it's not his divine nature, so you're separating them functionally, is what the argument was. And then um, they argued that there was not any theology set forth by church fathers for the practice of icons. For those who were for icons, they would respond to the charges in this way. Uh, first off, that the second commandment forbids the making of pagan icons or false gods. And uh, John of Damascus, he, he's the guy in this era, in this position, even though he wasn't present. I want to make sure I got that right. I don't believe he was present at this council, but he was the the appeal, right? He wrote the book. <laughs> he wrote the book on it. Um, in the Theodore of Stadium. Um, and they would admit that the icon of God was impossible in the Old Testament, but because of the Incarnation, this changed, right? Same thing we hear today. Um, They would argue that graven images were also different from icons because they were not statues, but rather paintings. Of course, we already talked about that debate, um, you know, between the East and West. Um, They additionally pointed out that God sanctioned many icons in the Old Testament, such as the, the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant, um, those that were on the uh, tabernacle curtain, the pomegranates woven on the high priest robes, uh, the cherubim on the inner sanctuary of the temple, carved figures on the temple walls and doors, the 12 bronze oxen along with the oxen lines, cherubim in the temple court, uh, and then of course the bronze serpent. They also held that the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of Christ. Um, and they further argued that they did not worship the icon, but gave honor to it. So the second council of Nicaea, you know, this council on this topic, noted that, um, that worship was to be given to Christ, Latria, and veneration should be given to Icon, proscuneus. Um And as we noted about those who argued that images didn't display the whole Christ, those who were for Icons argued that those who rejected pictures of Christ were not taking seriously the Incarnation. Um, so the Incarnation made a picture of God possible because um, God had become man. Christ was the icon um, or the image in English of um, God in Colossians And So they argued that if Christ cannot be depicted, he cannot have been a real man. So um, those who were against icons undermined the true humanity of Jesus, and they would say that they held to the heresy of docetism, uh, which basically said exactly what it sounds like that Jesus was divine, but he was not truly human. He only seemed human. So they further argued that no picture could portray the nature of God as the nature of God is invisible, but that an image of Christ is an image of the divine person who was in the human form in the incarnation. Since Jesus in his human form was God's human form, the picture did not deny the divine nature of Christ. Um, Additionally, those in favor of icons argued from Uh, the point of education, and for the uneducated. And they basically argue that since you can paint a picture with words in one's mind, you can also paint an icon on the wood for the same effect. Um, Now, since the Reformed tradition is the primary tradition against images of Christ within the Christian circles, a brief discussion on the Reformation seems appropriate. Now, Lutherans disagree with the Reformed tradition as well as the Catholic tradition. They don't believe that you venerate, but that... Images and icons or images can be useful for education. Anyway, so the Westminster Larger Catechism, which is um, one of the you know confessions of the Reformed tradition, notes that um, in question 109 of the Westminster Larger Catechism, what sins are forbidden in the Second Commandment? Uh, the sins forbidden in the Second Commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, or anywise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself, tolerating a f- false religion, Uh, The making of any representation of God, of all or any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever. All worshiping of it or God in in it or by it. uh, The making of any representation of uh, deities and all worship of them and service belonging to them. um, All superstitious devices corrupting the worship of God, adding to it or taking from it, whether invented or taken up by ourselves or received by tradition from others. Um, Though underneath the title of antiquity, custom, devotion, good intent, or any other practice or pretense whatsoever. Uh, So basically, uh, you can't make any image in your mind or on paper, so to speak, of any of the three persons of the Trinity. Um, And then, of course, they condemn worship of that image, um, whether by it or in it. And then they say um, basically that any appeal of antiquity, custom, devotion, good intent um, are unacceptable. Um, So all the Reformed confessions take this position in some shape or form, um, and it's usually stated that the Reformers and all the people in the Reformed tradition held to the same view. Now, while it is true that the majority um, of the Reformed tradition held to this, uh, there are interesting inconsistencies and a few exceptions. So first, um, Ulrich Zwingli, uh, the frontrunner of the Reformed tradition, believed that depictions of Christ were unacceptable, but he ironically had an image of Jesus from Revelation in his Zurich Bible, which he helped produce. Not only that, whenever I was looking at the title page of this Bible, there were several images of Christ on the title page. It even has one of Jesus in the Garden of Eden, and then also has a depiction of an angel uh, guarding the garden. Now, the angel is insignificant given the Westminster Confession, but it's significant to me whenever I consider the command in Exodus, if we're being consistent. Now, if you see that title page of the Zurich Bible and you say that's not Jesus, let me know. But it has Jesus on water, Jesus by fish, Jesus, you know, with someone bowing down before him. So I I don't know how you can get around that, but it also has one without a doubt um, in Revelation. Now, Martin Booser, I don't know if I ever say that man's name right, uh, was also against images of Christ, um, but in a very strange fashion. And what I mean is that he actually sounds like a docetist whenever he's saying that we shouldn't have images of Christ, because he basically said, or he did say, that the, the the bodily presence of Jesus had no benefit, and so therefore the image has no benefit. Very strange. I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. But anyway, um, he had a book called The Constant Defense, published about 15 years after his writing Against Images, and this book on the cover has a depiction of the crucifix with Jesus on the cross. Um, same can be said about John Calvin. Um, he seemed to be against images of Christ in his um, commentaries on Deuteronomy. But he had a publication, I'm not sure if he's aware or unaware of this at the time, of the sermons in 1583 with an image of Jesus on the cover. Now here's, here's kind of where it's like, okay, the reformers charged the depictions of Jesus as being heretical, because they uh, those depictions allegedly separate the divine nature of Christ from his humanity since only humanity may be represented same thing that we talked about earlier so again the the tensions between Nestorianism and docetism just continued and continues on um, and I mean I even said it with Martin just in the way he said that the the bodily presence of Jesus had no benefit it's just I don't know um, so there were friends of Calvin I not going to pronounce these correctly, Peter um, Vermigli and Girolamo Zanchi, uh, they differ from Calvin too. Uh, The former held that images were not inherently sinful, but they should not be placed within the churches lest they be led to idolatry. Um, And then the latter held that, um, quote, it is not impious to paint Christ insofar as he is a man, as long as the image is not worship, end quote. He also argued the logic of Calvin, um, by saying hey you know we make images of human beings but we can't know what the soul looks like so where's the consistency with that when we're talking about the divine nature um, and the human nature of christ um so this information was not found by myself but an article by eric parker that i'll link um you know in the description, and he provides citations and actually images of the bibles for the uric zwingli for the zurich bible the title page is what I found on my own, so go look up the title page of that if you want to see those other images. Um, and there's also manuscripts, you know, leading up to the printing press that had depictions of, you know, the gospel writers and things like that. But I also found, um, whenever I was looking, I was like, you know what? I'm going to look at my Geneva Bible. And sure enough, whenever I looked at my Geneva Bible, um, they have the tribes of Israel, and then they have um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then they also, and John, but they also have a... Lamb in front of a cross and a dove for the Holy Spirit on the cover of it. Now, according to the Westminster Confession, this would not be correct because you have the imagery put forth in the Bible, of course, um, being used to depict the the persons of the Trinity, uh, the Lamb, and then of course the dove for the Holy Spirit. Um, so this does make me wonder if the early Reformed tradition was more against the statues of the day and the veneration rather than the artistic representations. But my assumption has to be that they were just against images wholesale. Now it was, I believe, Archie Sproul who believes that images of Christ are okay. In fact, in his church, uh, I'll link a video. He talks about how he has images in his church. Um, he's one of the exceptions in the modern Reformed, big Reformed camp. Um, anyway, he he notes that Calvin seemed to have been dealing with the prevalent problem of. Worship of statues in his day, but was giving this, this temporary solution that wasn't meant to necessarily be permanent. Could be, but not necessarily. Um, so the argument was basically that, you know, remove these stumbling blocks now, and then whenever it's no longer a stumbling block, you know, bring them in. And given how they used the Bibles and how there's images on the Bibles, which the first study Bible is an educational tool, Um, They're trying to educate people on the Bible, Um, and then even um, Calvin's contemporaries saying that it's good for education. Um, It's this is a possible notion that the early reformers were okay with images in some shape or form, just not in worship because they were clearly against them. Otherwise, Um, and so in summary, if we were to summarize this whole episode, which will be part one, and we'll do part two later on, um, the early church data is unclear. What you have. Are um, either discrepancies, or you have some isolated cases of people who just didn't agree with it. Um, it's kind of unclear, um, but we do know that it was practiced. There were images and artwork, and especially from the fourth century to the seventh century, um, from in the West while the East was debating it. So there's that. And then of course you get to the Reformation, where basically it was this big, um, this big movement to get rid of statues and images because of idolatry and superstition. Right, very superstitious um, time period. Um, if you listen to this and if you have information on the early church that I might have missed or data on this that I might have missed, let me know. I would love to read more about it and, um, maybe include it in part two, um, as a, you know, preface to the actual, um, section of part two, cause I'll record that later on and on time today. Um, but on the next one, we'll do theology and we'll discuss the Decalogue structure and then we'll briefly talk about. Um, the thrust of the argument and the second commandment and then we'll talk about um, my view and some of my thoughts on um, those views that don't agree with my view. So there's that. I hope this was beneficial in some shape or form. I know it's kind of hard to track some of this information. I try to slow it down because I know I can speak too fast. Um, But again, I hope it was helpful. Thank you all again for being a part of Crisis the Cure. Um, If you are interested in Becoming a patron, you can do so at patreon.com slash Christisthecure. And before we go, we have one more little box to check. Make your plans now to join us for the G3 National Conference, September 30th through October 2nd, as we'll gather for Christian fellowship and the worship of God through song and the preached word. Our theme for the 2021 conference will be centered on biblical Christology. You can find registration details at g3men.org. Get 15% off by mentioning code G3JT. That's G3JT.